Tonight is the fourth installment in our Perfectly Imperfect series. We're teaching joy. And it's actually the full concept behind this idea of joy is letting go of feelings of scarcity and cultivating gratitude and joy. How does that all work? Why does that relate to the Lord's Prayer? Hmm. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out if we talk about it. So, joy. I don't know about you, but when I was younger and I would hear about joy, and I was spoken about at church, the way that I heard about joy is as if there was not enough to go around. As if joy was something that I wasn't doing well enough. I heard commands like, be more joyful, and I felt a tremendous burden or sense of guilt like, like this imagined reality of everybody out there is experiencing this joy. And there's no joy to be had for me. Where's my joy? And why can't I do this, this joy thing that everybody's talking about? Why do I spend lots of time feeling bleh, not joyful, like mundane, like melancholy? Why is this the case? Is there not enough joy to go around? Is everybody else sucking up all the joy? Do we got a bunch of joy suckers out there? Is joy scarce? Are you a joy sucker? (laughs) Is joy scarce? And then there was pizza. (laughs) Yeah. Let me tell you about this. One time, some of my Portland friends and I, we were going to head to a church that met on Saturday nights, and it was really cool. And uh, a bunch of young people would all, like hundreds of young people would all flock to this church on a Saturday night. And they have just really powerful worship. And their teacher was this guy named John Mark. And he had really anointed, powerful teachings. And I felt like every time I went to this church, I was hearing from the Lord through his Holy Spirit. This was a good place to be. So I got my friends Maddie and Allison and Amy, and we all hopped in a little Toyota Tercel, which was too small for the four of us. And we drove over to this church on a Saturday night, and we had a fantastic time. It was wonderful. Uh, And the worship was great, and the teaching was great, and our fellowship was great, and our time just hanging out with each other and enjoying each other and laughing and telling dumb stories. It was great. It was fantastic. Like, you couldn't have asked for anything better. Then, I have to take them back to their house. Well, Maddie and Allison were brother and sister. And then Amy was like our other friend. And they were all staying at Maddie and Allison's house. So I drive all of them back to Maddie and Allison's house, and I'm getting ready to drive back to my home. And I mention the comment... Oh my gosh, I'm so hungry, which happens to be the case right now as we speak, but that's just a coincidence. So, like any good friend, 
they say, well, hey, we have pizza in the fridge. Why don't you come in? And that was like everything that I wanted to hear at that moment in time. There's pizza in the fridge. And before you knew it, I don't even remember taking off my seatbelt, turning off the car, or opening the door. Before I knew it, I was in their kitchen. I don't know how I got there. And they were pulling out two extra large boxes of pizza. And my mouth is like salivating, like, it's salivating right now just thinking about it. I'm like anticipating what I know is about to come. The answer to my prayers, my fulfillment, like this hunger burning within me is about to be quenched, right? And they pull out two boxes this big and they say on the front, blind onion. And so now I know what I'm in for. A blind onion is no average ordinary pizza shop. It's this pizza shop in Portland that's just like, if pizza were a masterpiece, like a piece of art, like some, like if you took Beethoven, (laughs) a master composer, and he composed a pizza, that would be blind onion pizza. (laughs) And it was thick in the bottom of the crisp, the crust was crispy and the top was just so soft and gentle and it was covered with mountains of toppings, you know, and the cheese was just the perfect amount of cheese and it was melty and just a little bit falling off the sides of the slices, but like not too much where you're like getting it all over you, but just enough where it's like, oh, this is too good to be true. Mountains of toppings where you're getting like Alfredo chicken and it's like, oh, it's just a pile of everything. Or this, they, what they had that night was a meat lovers and a Hawaiian. And the meat lovers was just mountains of ham and bacon and sausage and pepperoni and another layer of ham and bacon and sausage, pepperoni and cheese and then more cheese and then crust. And you're like, oh, this thing could feed an army, right? And they had two of them. (laughs) So they pull this out and they open up these bountiful boxes and I look inside and I don't even know what to say. I'm speechless. The air has left the room. All the voices that I was hearing, the TV in the background, it's gone silent. All I see before me is pizza. And again, this is a lot of food. Two, like, extra large pieces. There's, like, 16 slices of each pizza. This could feed a whole room of people. And they say, go ahead, have as much as you want. So I grab a plate. And I start taking, like, three slices of pizza. And I'm going to put it on the plate, and I'm going to microwave it. It's going to be great, and I'm going to enjoy it. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the interruption to my focus moment with this pizza, right? All of a sudden, I heard the TV in the background again, I heard the noises, and the threat violation had entered my atmosphere. It was Allison's hand, who's, (laughs) this is her house, by the way. (laughs) Allison's hand interrupts my perspective of this pizza and goes to grab some slices for for herself. And my instincts kick in, and the three slices that I was about to put on my plate, which was plenty of food for just me, this would tie me over till the morning. 
my three slices, I dropped them because those don't matter anymore. And what matters is that Allison is now taking my pizza. What's wrong with this picture? Well, what's wrong with this picture is I'm in their house, in their kitchen, and they have hospitably offered me their pizza, and I'm about to slap Allison's hand away like, don't you? Right? It was, it was pretty hilarious. But what was possessing me to drop my satisfaction, my three slices, and to grab for what she was grabbing for? Was I just being weird? Like, was I just giving in to my animal instincts? Probably a little bit. But what animal instinct is that? Yeah, there was probably some selfishness in there, looking out for my selfness. But what I think happened that night with that pizza, even though there was plenty to go around, there was, there was enough to feed the whole family for two days. What was erupting out of me was a deep fear, a deep sense that there's not enough to go around. And there is, logically, if you do the mathematical calculations, there is enough pizza for everybody in this house right now. But Allison's hand reaching for the pizza was enough to spark my fear into a reality that almost made me hit her hand away from her pizza in her kitchen inside of her house. I was, I was, I was weird. I don't know. But this feeling of scarcity, this feeling that there's not going to be enough, this feeling that I must let go of my satisfaction, my three slices, my little scoop of the kingdom. I must let it go to protect what belongs to me and only me, at least in my mind. There's not enough to share. A sense of scarcity and discontentment. I wasn't happy with my three slices. I wanted to protect this because there was this sense that I knew deep down in those deep places that at some point this pizza is going to run out. This pizza will not last forever. So this temporary satisfaction that I might have from these three slices, this answer to my prayer, I must let go of my joy. Because there will not be enough of that in the future. And what I was doing in that moment was I was experiencing something that some people call foreboding joy. Foreboding is like having a bad feeling about the future. Now foreboding, having a bad feeling about the future and joy, how do you put those two words together? Joy is like intense happiness now mixed with a, I have a bad feeling about the future. And so much of our joy, I think, is short-lived because so many of us are throwing down our pizza to grab for what there won't be enough of in the future. 
foreboding joy. It's a feeling that this joy will not last. And because this joy will not last, because I know that the pizza will run out, I'm going to choose feelings other than joy, like give in to that fear-based scarcity and grasp for what I need not grasp for. I will not live in this moment where the Lord has provided for me and experiencing experience all the joys of fully receiving what he has given me. So, the Lord's Prayer. In Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, it's in Luke 11, the disciples say to Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Luke's account is the shorter version of the Lord's Prayer. So he answers them, but we're going to be talking about the longer version of his prayer. But they say, teach us how to pray. And what a strange thing for young Jewish boys to be asking. They prayed regularly. They were raised that way. They were raised that every day they would recite the great Shema which is from Deuteronomy 6, which says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They, they would recite this prayer. They would go to synagogue. They were around people who prayed. Their parents prayed. Their teachers prayed. Their rabbis prayed. They were in a prayerful environment. So why would these people, surrounded by this prayer community, Say to Jesus, teach us how to pray. And I think that they saw something very distinct in the way that Jesus prayed. There was something different about the way that he prayed. There was something that stood out about the way that Jesus prayed that made him an outlier. It made him stand out from the rest of the community in the way that he prayed. They looked at the community and they saw people praying and they saw stuff going on and happening and life happening. And they said, man, what difference is this community's prayer making? And on the other hand, they hung out with Jesus and they saw him pray early in the morning. And they saw him pray before he went and did anything important. In fact, this prayer was so important to him that that he would steal away. He would leave his disciples behind. He would go to his private place and he would offer up prayers to the Father. And they would see Jesus come back and something was different. Something was different about Jesus. Something was different about his attitude and his demeanor. Something was different about the circumstances surrounding Jesus' life. Because he prayed. Now what's the difference here between these two modes of prayer? Why are they asking Jesus, teach us how to pray, when they've been taught how to pray their whole lives and they've imitated people older than them in praying they've been taught how to pray they see the 
intimacy of Jesus' prayers. They see the closeness of Jesus' prayers. All of a sudden, there's this difference. They're noticing that these prayers that they've experienced this whole life, the prayers that they've prayed, the reciting of the great Shema, it had this distance to it. It had this non-closeness. And then they look at this way that Jesus is praying and they say, man, I want that. How do I get that? And it prompts this question. They say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. He says, okay. And he gives them what's called the Lord's Prayer. Now, he wasn't giving them a new prayer to just start reciting. He didn't say, this is the Lord's Prayer now, repeat it every day. He says, this is how you pray. This way in which I show you, this is your model prayer. And when you go away to your secret place, when you remove yourself from everything going on in life, this is your model by which I want you to pray. So this is what he says in Matthew 6. You can turn there if you want. Matthew 6, 5. This is Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer. And we're using this one because this one's a a little longer. This is the more familiar version. Um, This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And he gives this little section right here where he teaches on prayer. He says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. This is that distant prayer that, we're that we were talking about. This is the prayer that they're familiar with. This is the prayer that they see is not quite working out. This is what makes them look at Jesus and say, Man, I want to pray like he prays. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Your reward is not man hearing your prayers. Your reward is God hearing your prayers. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. He goes, I don't want wordy stuff. I don't want you to come to me to impress me. I just want you to talk. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. He's saying God already knows the prayer that is about to bubble forth out of you. He just wants you to come into His presence so that you can actually say it to Him. This is how you pray. This is our model prayer. This is what's known as the Lord's Prayer. It should sound really familiar. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the prayer. 
This is in his central teaching in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, as he's teaching about giving, being salt and light, about anger, about lust, about how we live, about not being anxious, about divorce and promises and retaliation and love your enemies and giving to the needy. As he's talking about all this, this is his little part about prayer. And this is his little commentary at the end. For if you give others their trespass, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not give forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So what's going on in this prayer? Well, first, what stands out is that Jesus says... In the opening line, our Father. This is revolutionary. In this day, to a Jewish audience, you know how they referred to God, who they knew as Yahweh? They didn't even say his name, they didn't even say Yahweh. It was too sacred. It was too holy. It was too set apart to even utter it out of your mouth. And because of its holiness, they would just call him the name. Who are you praying to? The name. And it speaks of this distance in a prayer. You could imagine you're offering up a prayer to the name. At the end, you go, in the name, amen. Nothing personal about it. And I imagine Jesus kind of shocks these young disciples and the people listening to this teaching when he starts the prayer with our father, our dad, our papa, or as he was said, our Abba. Immediately ushering you into this familiarity instead of in this distance. In the way that he's teaching them how to pray, it's not these empty words for which they will hurt, they think they will be heard. It's these close, relational, intimate words. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, God, you are set apart and you are special. This is who I'm praying to. So he starts out acknowledging who he's praying to. You're set apart and you are special, but you're close enough and familiar enough that I can refer to you in a familiar way. Your kingdom come and your will be done. As he's coming into this presence, I imagine that with this prayer, he's commanding a great pause. It's not a prayer filled with many words for which people think they will be heard. It's not like the Pharisees and the hypocrites standing on the street corners and praying really loudly for people to hear them. 
You know, the greatest composers are masters, not just of putting a bunch of notes on the page and overwhelming the audience with tons of noise. The greatest composers of music know how to pause. They know that the pauses between the notes are just as important as the notes themselves. And if the pause does not balance out the action, all you're being is noise. In fact, some people think that it might not even be music without pauses. Just noise. In the way that Jesus is teaching how to pray, this prayer is a giant pause. Go to your secret place. Go to your prayer closet. Go to where you are alone with the Father, not to be heard for your many words. But go where you can be present to the Father and the Father can be present to you. And where you can pause the noise of life and get in tune with the way that the Father operates. It's like this moment of intense focus. I meet with the Father, and the Father comes to meet with me. That's crazy. And this prayer is not about me responding to the stresses and anxieties of life. Because if I'm, offering, if I'm operating by the rhythms of life and its stresses and what life tells me is important and what life tells me are priorities, then when I offer prayers with many words to God, it's going to sound pretty great. But I'm praying in that case for my will to be accomplished in heaven. How often are our prayers, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And if that's the case, then we need to pause and say maybe we need to recalculate and try again. Because in this way that Jesus instructs us to pray, it's central to the prayer. He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we come to our secret place and to our prayer closet, and when we bring our stress and anxiety before the Lord... We're not praying everything we want God to do for us. We're praying to be transformed and to be realigned so that our will matches 
his will. And when we do that, all of a sudden we feel kind of helpless, don't we? We say, man, I don't feel in control and I don't like it. Someone is bigger than me. Someone else has made this universe. Someone else is in control. And I need to readjust my life, my desires, and my rhythms, and my anxieties according to how he is and how he created me and what he desires to do in this world and in my life. Because when we pray with many words and when we pray on the street corners and when we pray to be heard and when we pray to get our will accomplished in heaven, the world is not enough to steal a James Bond title. If we had all those prayers that we pray answered in the way that we prayed them, it would still never be enough. Three ginormous slices of pizza was not enough. I had to drop it and let it go because my deep fears said I must keep the rest of this for myself satisfaction will not be enough I will not be happy with my daily bread I want bread for tomorrow and the next day yet as Jesus prays give us this day our daily bread The Israelites in the wilderness, he would feed them daily with manna, their daily bread. And they would go out and they would collect it. And they would be able to collect just enough for the day. And sometimes they would feel that feeling of scarcity, that anxiety that we feel. And they would want to take enough for tomorrow too, just to be sure. And the manna would disappear. They weren't allowed to take tomorrow's bread. Only today's. And what they were being conditioned to learn as the Lord provided daily their bread. What they were being conditioned to learn was I'm needy. I need stuff that I can't provide for myself. I'm not in control enough to manipulate the universe. And what happens in this giant pause if we do this prayer thing right 
If we're doing it the way he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we're praying that, if we're meeting that, if we're praying, give us this day, our daily bread and forgive us because I can't forgive me. And as you forgive me and I learn forgiveness, I'll forgive other people. What happens in all of this is that we start to develop trust through prayerful presence before the Father. We start to feel our own neediness and our dependence. As uncomfortable as that might be. We start to feel that we can't do this on our own. And maybe that's exactly what he wanted us to figure out when we pray. If we stopped letting our prayers be just a constant flow of many words to the Father without any listening in between. All we'll ever do is talk to him about what we think is wrong all around us. And if that's the only way we know how to pray, we will spend life thinking that there is stuff wrong all around us. There will never be enough pizza because it's going to run out. We'll never be content with our three slices that he's given us for today. But when we come to prayer and we expect to be transformed and we expect to be realigned and we expect to do just as much listening as we do talking and we expect to readjust our desires, our will and our rhythms according to God's. What happens is these feelings of scarcity and discontentedness, they start to fizzle out. They start to experience a real feeling of gratitude because we've acknowledged our dependence and our neediness. And we go, my goodness, I look at this life and all I can do is be thankful. I have not made any of this. I have not given myself life. I have not given myself oxygen. I have not given myself daily bread. I cannot forgive myself. So when I pray the way that Jesus taught us to pray, if I'm doing it the right way, the way that he did, I leave prayer a different person than I went into it. And what I start to see 
if I just kind of settle down for a minute and I stop blabbing my neediness, I just stop and I sit and I'm before the Lord and I go, man, I'm, I'm needy. I'm dependent. I start to find a new kind of contentedness because I'm just okay with it. Because I know he'll provide my daily bread. And I know that he'll forgive me if I ask him to. And I know that I'm okay with his will being done. Because he sees more than I see and he understands more than than I understand. And his wisdom is wiser than my wisdom. And when I come to that place, that great pause, I start to look at the world differently. And all of a sudden, the world in my perception is not a manifestation of all my my fears, my fears of scarcity, my fears that there will never be enough. There will never be enough pizza. It's going to run out. I just kind of start to settle in and accept the fact that when I need pizza, he will provide pizza. And when I need money, he will provide money. And when I need his spirit to give me strength to operate, he will give me his spirit at that time, precisely when I need it. I don't need to hoard and hang on to all these things. He will take care of me. All of a sudden, my prayers just start to turn into these prayers of gratitude and thanksgiving. And what I see is not the scarcity everywhere. When I'm transformed in my prayer, I start to see there is joy to be had everywhere. Know why there is joy to be had everywhere? Because he is my father and I am his son. And when I say or when I pray, your kingdom come here. His kingdom comes here. And sick people are made well. Poor people have enough. Hungry people are satisfied. Persecuted people are no longer persecuted. The proud people who oppress are made low. When I say your kingdom come here, that means that right here, Jesus is in charge. Your kingdom come to earth 
right here, right now, on earth as it is in heaven. Make it like it is in heaven, right here and right now. That doesn't make all the brokenness go away. But that means that I can be satisfied, content, and still before the Lord because I deeply, deeply trust Him. That He will bring His kingdom here and now. And you've heard the expression, my cup is full, right? If somebody is filled with joy, they might say something like, my cup is full, right? Here's the thing that we've got to realize about our cups. If our cups have holes in the bottom, our cup will never be full. And if my daily bread is being dropped so that I can go hoard two giant pizzas to myself, which I can never eat, if I'm letting go of my daily bread to grab what I cannot have, there's holes in my cup. I've let the real blessing pass through my fingers to grab something that is way too much for me. The blessing came and it went because I was looking at something else. My eyes were on something that didn't even belong to me. But if we start to fill the holes in our cup, if we start to do some patchwork, if we start to say, yeah, that attitude's not right. Yeah, that discontentedness is not right. That fear is not right. That feeling that there's never enough, nope, not right. That selfishness, that is not right. That's not God's will. And as I start to fill those holes, it's not that the Lord is giving me more so now I can be happy. It's not that He's making my cup fill up because He turned the faucet on at a higher speed or whatever. It's that the blessing was always there and I wasn't paying attention to it. But if I start to fill the holes in my cup and I ask Jesus to help me do some patchwork on these things that don't resemble him, I start to see the joy everywhere. My cup starts getting really full because he's constantly giving me daily bread and he's constantly filling my cup. And now I can just acknowledge it. 
now my prayers are not so fearful. My prayers are more content to say things like, your kingdom come and your will be done. Letting go of scarcity and cultivating gratitude and joy is not saying, hey, you're not being joyful enough. Would you go out there and just be more joyful already? That's not what it's saying. It's not saying go fabricate some happiness that really isn't there. I'm not asking you to be something you're not. I'm just asking you to go be in the Lord's presence and let him wash over you and let him transform you and let your prayers be real and intimate and personal so that you're transformed and you leave your prayer closet a different person and all of a sudden that joy that was always there to be had is now satisfying And you're not letting go of the three slices of pizza that would fill you up to go grab a pizza and a half that you can never eat. Because you're just grateful for the three. You're happy with the three. You're abundantly joyful that he's given you enough. Not more than enough. Just enough. So let's cultivate that kind of joy. Amen? Pray. Jesus, help us in this. We're in desperate need of you. God, help us to be content. Help us to be satisfied with our daily bread. Help us to align our will with your will. Help us to desire what you desire. Work in us by your Holy Spirit to patchwork those holes in our cup. So that the blessings that you're constantly pouring out on us, we could realize them and be thankful for them. And let our cups be filled. Let our joy be overflowing. Not because we got our will done, but because we changed our will to be just like yours. Bless us in these endeavors. In your name, amen.